What is happening, everyone? Welcome again to The Window, Canada sports betting podcast. Ahead on today's episode of The Window, nobody circles the wagons. The Bills predictably put a hurt on the Patriots. We'll discuss the handicapping element that kept that line as low as it was, why some believe there was value on the Patriots, but how ignoring the eye test created a good price on the Bills. Then we'll take a first look at week 17 as the lines get crazy, where we should be buying the value and where we should be hands-off. Finally, I'll run through the remaining bowl games this week after Saturday's 3-0 sweep. It's time to head to the window. Let's go. Welcome to the window. I'm your host, Matt Russell, and we start with the Monday Night Football game. Bills, minus seven, easy winner for us there to end up just above 500 at 5, 4, and 1 on the best bets this week. Um, One thing that I want to talk about with regards to this game, there isn't a ton to talk about from a football standpoint, but from a market and a, um, you know, a pricing standpoint, really. There's a sector of handicappers who make their numbers. So you'll see them on the media and they're talking about how, you know, their number comes out to, you know, five for this game. And the number's minus seven, so five, okay, that's a bet, you know, plus seven on the Patriots, et cetera, et cetera. And what a lot of these handicappers do is they make numbers using closing numbers of past weeks. So for instance, they're making their number in Buffalo and New England here off of New England closing as a minus one favorite against Miami last week. They're making this number off of Buffalo closing as one two-point underdogs to San Francisco a couple of weeks ago. They're making this number off of you know various other games in the last few weeks of the Patriots. And what they're doing here is they're trusting the efficiency of the NFL markets past numbers because we all sort of agree that the NFL market is one of the most efficient markets in the entire world because the money is going to dictate where the lines go, right? There isn't anything else that's sort of faulty in and amongst these games, unless you believe for whatever reason that these games are fixed and all of that other kind of garbage. And listen, sometimes it looks like it, but I promise you that they're not. And so they trust the inefficiency, the efficiency of this market. And last night was a tough night for these people. For me, I look at this and I look at that as sort of part of the plan. But isn't the whole point of sports betting to find inefficiencies in this market? So if everybody thinks the same way, there's going to be an inefficiency going the other way. Now, it was strange because last night, heavily ticket, you know, percentage tickets heavily weighted to the bills money heavily weighted to the bills and so you go okay well like that should automatically indicate that there's some value on the patriots because you know this money has driven this number up to seven the thing is it was never really driven up to seven the line was always kind of seven right it opened minus seven last week and so if we're looking for inefficiencies in the market If the market is wrong about, say, the Patriots, for example, 
or the Cardinals, a team that we talk about quite frequently, right? Watch the Cardinals get bumped up from minus five all the way up to in one specific spot, minus seven, but mostly minus six and a half this week, only to watch them lose the game outright and really not be all that close to winning the game or covering the spread. Now, there are some games where, you know, we talk about the butterfly effect, the sliding doors effect of one or two plays early on changing the course of the game. Now, I don't know that last night, maybe Demir Bird getting hit in the face with a Cam Newton throw that should have at the very least been first and goal. You know, they end up getting three points instead of seven, where the, would those four points really have mattered all that much in the grand scheme of things? You watch that game and anybody paying any to kind of attention knows that the Bills in this current state are a much better football team than the Patriots in their current state. So the point is, is if the market's wrong about the Patriots right now, and they're wrong about the Cardinals right now, and I'm sure there's other teams that they may be wrong about, we'll get into that shortly with regards to week 17. And maybe they're wrong about on the flip side, discounting the Bills, right? Maybe they're not giving the Bills enough credit even though we've been through an entire season at this point, and we should all acknowledge that the Bills are a really good football team on both sides of the ball. If you're going with this premise, if you are using these closing numbers, by the time the closing numbers catch up, it's going to be too late. One, you will have already lost a bunch of bets based on these sort of antiquated opinions of this team. And two, by the time it's caught up, it's going to be too late because, frankly, the season is just going to be over. And as we know, season to season, things change in the NFL. So last night's numbers were built off the Bills being underdogs to San Francisco, not the actual result. The Patriots being minus one at Miami, not the actual result of Miami winning that game. Patriots minus four and a half against the Rams just a couple of weeks ago at the Rams. Like, sure, if we are basing it off of those numbers being appropriate numbers, if the Patriots were truly four and a half points worse on the road to the Rams, then yes, minus seven at home to the Bills, or with the Bills being minus seven favorites, yeah, that number doesn't make sense. But if we're watching the games and we're seeing the Patriots lifelessly playing against Miami, lifelessly playing against the Rams, and getting blown out by the Rams, and essentially letting a really mediocre Dolphins team push them around and take them down relatively easily in the second half, you have to realize that these closing numbers are just wrong. Now, there are a ton of cases, and I'd say the vast majority of the cases, where no matter what the result of the game was, the closing number was probably correct, right? You wouldn't make Tampa a four touchdown favorite the next time that they play the Detroit Lions. That's just how that game went. The closing line being as high as it was turned out to be correct, but it would never be much higher than that. And so if we're basing these numbers instead of off the actual result, those numbers we're using are built on brand, right? The assumption that the Patriots are, you know, they're going to pull it together. They're, you know, Belichick's going to come up with something here to hang with the Rams. He's going to come up with something to beat the Dolphins on the road. All of these sort of voodoo concepts here that are just based on the jerseys that these teams are wearing and the coach of the team, which again, coaching incredibly important but when you just don't have any talent on your team which Belichick has admitted to having a dearth of talent months ago 
So this isn't him trying to trick us into anything. He has frankly just said, listen, we uh, sold the farm for six Super Bowls and now we're having to rebuild. And people just weren't willing to listen to that. So those numbers were built on brand. Well, simply as possible, this was an 11-3 team in the Bills here against a team that, if it wasn't for Belichick and some coaching here, and really if you've just looked over the last few weeks, they kind of have the look of a three-win team. We're going to see them this week against the Jets, a team that I think after this week is going to be a three-win team, and you're going to be more impressed with the Jets after this week than you will be with the Patriots, I think. And so if the Patriots are about the quality of a three-win team, and again, this is including not having Damian Harris, this is including not having Julian Edelman, this is including not having Stefan Gilmore, etc., etc. But if they're a team that looks like a three-win team right now, and the Bills are an 11-win team that frankly could easily be 12 and 2, 12 and or 13 and 2 going into this final week. These types, those types of matchups, garner spreads like the ones we saw in Detroit and Tampa Bay, right? Like that matchup, 11 and 3 versus 3 and 11, 3 and 12 versus 12 and 3. That's a 13-point spread if it wasn't for the fact that the Patriots are wearing Patriots jerseys. And also a little bit that the Bills are wearing Bills jerseys. But if we're going through all the numbers and comparing these teams, right? Like why was Cleveland a 10-point favorite against the Jets on the road at New York? And the Bills are just a 7-point favorite at the Patriots. Look at it right now. You know, spoiler alert here. But the Jets are three-point underdogs to the Patriots this coming week at New England. Uh, you know, saying here, essentially, that these teams are within a field goal of each other. So why are the Browns, who aren't the team that the Bills are, why are they 10-point favorites? Again, of course, pre-COVID, wiping out their wide receivers and moving the line down to six, six and a half, and then having the Jets win outright. But going into that game, if everything was all on the up and up, 10-point favorites. So why weren't the Bills favored by 10 in this game? And that's simply because the people out there who do their handicapping solely on the math, right? Solely on working the numbers, don't care about what the games are, don't even really watch the games. And they're just working off of closing lines and they're working off of efficiency numbers from earlier on the season, which is just an unrecognizable version of some of these teams. They're the ones who are betting the plus seven. So they're the ones keeping that number in check. So even though the percentage is high from a betting ticket and a betting money standpoint with Buffalo, they're not willing to move that line up because they see that money is willing to be bet on the Patriots at plus seven. So that if this line goes up to seven and a half, they're going to get even more than that. And they respect this money and they should because a lot of times this money is actually correct. This type of thinking, this type of handicapping style would give you Dallas plus three against Philadelphia as value, for example. Okay, but at least with that, there's elements of the eye test to support both fading Philadelphia and backing Dallas, right? Dallas had won a couple of games in a row. Dallas had beaten San Francisco, Dallas beaten Cincinnati, right? Two teams that at least over the last week and a half or so have looked functional. So you could make the case there's no reason to be selling Dallas as aggressively as people were. 
On the flip side, Philadelphia. They lose to Arizona. Doesn't seem to bother anybody. Jalen Hurts, he's in. This is great. Da, 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 da. Right? They beat the Saints. Sure. Right? Upset situation. But I don't know that you would change that line all that drastically if those, if the Eagles played the Saints again in Philadelphia tomorrow, for example. So there's at least reasons why you would take Dallas, why you would take Philadelphia. There just wasn't that from an eye test standpoint. So this whole handicap of the Patriots having value at plus seven was completely devoid of actually watching this team play, watching the Dolphins run for 250 yards on them when the Dolphins couldn't even get half of that against the Raiders. So where was the eye test in anybody making a case for the Patriots? It didn't exist. All they were doing was basing it off of these closing lines that had been faulty, right? We were on the Rams at minus four and a half and happy to do so as the Patriots could barely score. So why would we validate minus four and a half after the fact? Why would we use that as a number deciding anything that we do? Knowing that, to be honest with you, that number probably should have been seven and a half. I'm not saying it should be, you know, should have been 20 and a half the way the spread actually, you know, the actual game spread ended up being. But you have to use all of these things in concert together. Last thing, the biggest issue I have with this approach is taking it blindly or close to it. Because the closing numbers that make New England plus four and a half doesn't mean value on New England plus seven and a half without these other considerations. But the good news is... This is the type of thinking that can explain why Buffalo is just minus seven, and this is where the money comes to hold that number down. And the thing is, you don't need a spreadsheet or a formula to come up with these numbers, just a halfway decent memory. So for example, if in week 15, Las Vegas is a three and a half point home favorite to the Chargers, and the next week, they're three point underdogs to Miami. Ask yourself the simple question, if there's really a six and a half point difference between Miami and the LA Chargers on a neutral field, especially considering they played a month ago in Miami and the line was Miami minus one. Now, Miami won by eight, but there's no chance that line, if those two teams played again today, would be minus eight, minus seven, even minus six. So there isn't in any way, shape, or form, a six and a half point difference between those two teams. So why wouldn't there be value on Las Vegas at plus three against Miami? I just did that off the top of my head, didn't need a spreadsheet, didn't need um, you know an elaborate formula to sort of figure out what the number should be. I can just see it and go, yep, that number's too high, right? So this doesn't have to be as complicated as people make it out. And it's very easy to sort of come up and be like, well, no closing line numbers and four and a half and all of this sort of stuff. It doesn't have to be that difficult. Now, the other problem with this is, and this system that they use to kind of come up with these numbers is like we said, like there just isn't enough time to be able to take advantage of these numbers even if you had it, right? To me, this system works better with a higher volume sport like college basketball for example, because you're not getting the one game a week situation for 16, 17 weeks, and then that's it. You're getting a little bit more volume. Now, baseball, in theory, would be perfect for this, except for the fact that the money lines change on a daily basis based on pitching. So you could only do this specifically to your 
you know, one specific starting pitcher, or each specific specific starting pitcher, and it gets far more in depth and more complicated than that. And that's what a lot of baseball handicappers do, right? They know that X pitcher, say Jacob Degrom, for example, he should be lined at this price against this team, lined at this price against that team. Sometimes he's a minus three hundred, sometimes he's a minus two hundred, sometimes against the Dodgers, maybe he's only minus one forty. All of that kind of thing. And so to, in order to do this successfully, you would have to chart every single pitcher in the league and the different variables that all go involved into it. And so it's very, very tricky, but at least there's a ton of data points that you can work with. In the NFL, there just isn't enough because by the time your system here and your closing lines factor in that, yeah, the Bills should be minus seven. Frankly, they should be a little bit higher. By the time that's factored in and averaged out with your closing line against the Dolphins, closing line against the Chargers, closing line against the Rams, it's too late. The season's already over. You've already lost a handful of bets on this system. So while number making off of closing numbers can be a valuable exercise, and again, I don't mean to dissuade that because I reference that kind of thing all the time. Look ahead lines, um, lines against teams from the, you know, in past games, right? Mentioned it last week with regards to the Vegas Dolphins, Chargers, all of that sort of that triumvirate, if you will. This can all be valuable, but it has to be one part of the puzzle. And so when you hear somebody say, my number's four and a half, so I have to go with this thing, you have to take that with a grain of salt. It's not the be all and end all. And the the way some, you know, think that it might be, and the same way anything else isn't, right? And so whether you're using just gut or whether you're using eye test, all of these things are just tiny pieces of the puzzle, right? You know, situational spots with regards to scheduling, just a tiny piece of the handicapping puzzle. And so, you know, was there, you know, was there a valuable number on New England last night? By the numbers, yes, but we've seen New England play recently. We've seen enough of Buffalo to know how good they are. They haven't been buried at 1 p.m. for the last four weeks. They've been on primetime standalone game. Now, hindsight is always worth 20-20, right? But I thought this was just worth mentioning because of how interesting that line was and the fact that it's stuck there at seven, despite all of that money coming in, all of those tickets as the sort of square side with Buffalo and why that might be different from Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, or some of these other games that we've seen. Now, they won't come up all that often because, again, this system does work in a lot of different ways. I referenced the Dallas-Philadelphia game. Plenty of other different ways in which that can be referenced as well, right? San Francisco-Arizona is actually a pretty decent example because of San the credit that the market had been giving San Francisco as three-point favorites to Dallas on the road, uh, favorites against Buffalo, and then to have them show up as six and a half point underdogs to Arizona, right? Again, another example of just look at some of these past lines and see if this stuff jives. And just because one team loses, because they turned the ball over four times, because Nick Mullins was at the helm, or, you know, whatever example that you want to use, doesn't mean that, you know, that's it. The line was way, way off, et cetera, et cetera, right? If you're just the Patriots, you're watching them, and you're just like, this team's just not very good, that's a lot different than, oh, this team had some bad turnover luck and that kind of thing. So uh, on to the NFL, week 17, first look. And unfortunately, you know, you might have listened to that and gone, yeah, okay, all of that makes sense. Like, can't wait to dig into the coming weeks and, you know, cr crunch these numbers and evaluate these lines. And then we turn the page and it's week 17. 
And frankly, none of these make sense. Now, they make sense sort of from a fundamental standpoint, but they're going to be wacky in that they're not based on kind of anything. And so let's get into it. We've got the Falcons and the Bucks to start here. And this is one that kind of actually does make sense. Bruce Arians announced today they are going to try to win this game. Uh, that makes sense. As we get into week 17 here, when we're talking about motivation, teams trying, all of that sort of thing, it makes sense that they would try desperately to get the five seed so that they can go to the Giants, so that they could go to the Cowboys or even the Washington football team, rather than have to go to one of the top three seeds in the NFC, right? Whether it's Seattle, whether it's Green Bay, whether it's New Orleans, who would you rather go visit in your first round matchup? So yeah, they are going to try their tail off here. And so normally I would look at this and go Falcons plus six and a half, a lot of value here. But isn't it funny that two weeks ago, the line was the exact same. Buccaneers minus six, minus six and a half, even got up to seven on the road at Atlanta. Now Atlanta covers that game. They need basically everything that they got out of the first half in order to hang on and do that. They needed a, you know kind of a fortunate situation at the end of the game. We were, of course, on Atlanta uh, at that number. Now, are they going to compete this week in the same way that they competed two weeks ago against Tampa Bay, in the same way they competed against Kansas City? I fully expect them to, uh, but at six and a half, like either there was value two weeks ago, which to be honest, there probably was, or there's a ton of value this week. So am I necessarily clamoring to jump on the minus six and a half right now with the Buccaneers? No, I'm going to let this thing play out, see where this kind of ends up. I think the you know the way that Atlanta's played here at the end of the season has been commendable with regards to you know their effort level. Certainly not a team that's quit on Raheem Morris, even though the second half was ugly a couple of weeks ago. But again, they proved themselves to still be into this season. And so if I can get points with a team that's still trying, I'm going to do so. And so with Bruce Arians announcing that they're going to try, that's going to create value on the Falcons. And so maybe that creates value by this number going up to seven. Maybe it goes through seven to seven and a half because people realize that this was six and a half on the road a couple of weeks ago. You know, we'll see. I certainly don't think I will be backing Tampa Bay giving six and a half points to a Falcons team that, again, is still, you know, locked into this game. Plus, you look at last week's game with regards to the Bucks and the value that there may have been created by them going up against a dead Lions team that defensively, Really, I mean, all you have to get, eye test standpoint, all you have to do is look and watch and go, wow, this looks like a seven on seven drill, right? Like defense going half, not really sure where they're going, all of that kind of stuff, completely disorganized. And so if you're going to get excited about Tampa Bay because they beat up on the Lions, and you can watch that broadcast and listen to the words that were said on that broadcast about, oh, like what an offensive performance from the Bucks, like just incredible, blah, blah, blah. Well, if they're going against virtual air, I'd like to think that the offensive performance was going to be particularly spectacular. And listen, you know, half the time you think the Falcons Falcons are good defensively half the time you think that they're not literally in the matchup two weeks ago for the first half they were and the second half they were not are they going to change things up what are the adjustments getting made from a game to game standpoint right to keep this thing relatively close but all I can go off of is narrative right now and if the narrative is Tampa Bay wants to win this game they're going to try their hardest which the coach literally said that they will to me and this is sort of thematic of the rest of the slate you're going to get value going the other way 
And so we'll see if this thing gets to seven, and at which point I think Falcons have to be a consideration at plus seven. Again, in week 17, and it's been like this all season long, and it's not going to be any different for week 17, making bets earlier on the week few and far between because we just don't know what some of these teams are going to do. And so you might be like, oh, let me grab this number because I think this guy's going to sit, and I think this line's going to move up, and this guy, or this line's going to move down kind of a, a bit of a gambit in and of itself. And so we move on to this next game, the Baltimore Ravens and the Cincinnati Bengals. And so the Ravens going to be giving 110% going on the road to the Bengals. And listen, Bengals with two straight victories here. I mean, I kind of can't believe that that's happened. I had to sort of think about it for a second. It's like really two straight actual wins. And they're 11 and a half point underdogs. So am I like tripping over myself to bet the Bengals? No, because again, from a defensive standpoint, last week against the Texans, was that defense any more into it and organized than the Detroit Lions were? And so if I'm not going to give the Bucks any credit for looking like they were in a preseason scrimmage against the Lions, why would I do that for the Bengals? Do I think Brandon Allen is all of a sudden going to be just threading the needle out there against a Ravens defense that has been pretty locked in the last couple of weeks? We talk about the Ravens all the time. Ravens as bullies. They will beat you up if you're no good. And I still don't think, sorry, I don't think the Bengals are any good just because they lucked into a win against the Steelers and they went to Houston and they actually cared, whereas Houston did not. And that's not just my opinion. That's J.J. Watt's opinion about whether the Texans cared last week. So at 11 and a half, I'm not saying, hey, let's go out and grab the Ravens right now. They're going to pummel the Bengals. But I'm also not getting overly excited about the Bengals in this spot either. Dallas and the New York Giants here. This one, again, what version of the New York Giants are we going to get? And that's really what this comes down to because fundamentally, plus three for the Giants at home against Dallas is too high, right? Like the value here is on the Giants. And it's very easy to kind of, now we might re-fall in love with the Cowboys. They've won three straight, scoring a bunch of points against Philadelphia, all of that stuff. You know, are they going to be the team that sneaks into the playoffs? The Cowboys are back, America's team. You know, Buccaneers, Tom Brady going to Dallas in that first week. All of that stuff sounds very enticing. But fundamentally, plus three is too many points here. That being said, what can we expect out of the Giants? Because, again, we're just not getting any offense out of the Giants. But this wouldn't be the first time that a team had a bad offense for three or four weeks and then all of a sudden scored a bunch of points on a defense that I still don't think is particularly good, right? Case in point, the previously mentioned Cincinnati Bengals here. So again, we'll take a little bit of a wait-and-see approach, but at least, at least with this game, you know that you're getting both teams going hard at each other for 60 minutes with something on the line. A showdown game, if you will. As we've just talked about two games, that would really be in the mow-down category, especially the Ravens and the Bengals. Dolphins and the Bills. Bills currently minus four and a half. This is such a no man's land type of a game. Do the Bills care about this game? Is this important in any way, shape, or form? Does Josh Allen need to play in this game? Is it important for them to finish second or third in the standings? Why would it be? This isn't this isn't the same thing as Tampa Bay desperately trying to face the NFC East winner. You don't know what you're going to get out of the second or third seed. You might get the Ravens right? You might get somebody else. You might get the, you know, 
Colts, you might get the Titans at this point, you might get the Browns, you might get the Dolphins, who's to know? And it doesn't necessarily mean because you finished second that you got the worst team, right? The Ravens could end up falling into that seventh spot. And so isn't a day of, or a week I should say, of rest for a Josh Allen, for a Stefan Diggs, maybe Matt Milano on defense, maybe Tredavious White on defense. Some of these guys have been sort of in and out of the lineup, right? Is there any need to have John Brown return back for this game, come off the COVID list? Doesn't really feel like they need to do that. So at what point, if this team is full strength, are they really only four and a half point favorites against the Dolphins? Like what does this line indicate to us, right? Because sometimes it's, what are, the, what are we reading the tea leaves in order to make a line? And then sometimes the line's out there for us in this situation. And we have to kind of decipher what that means for week 17. So if it's Matt Barkley and the rest of the Buffalo Bills, does that make more sense against Tua and the Dolphins? If it was, are you going to favor the Dolphins just because Barkley's in and, you know, and there's no Josh Allen, does it swing that heavily to one side or the other? So this one is an ultimate wait and see. Could you try to guess which way this line is going to go? The, reasons, the reason it's at four and a half is so that it's a quick move to go down to three. It's a quick move to go up to six, six and a half if it looks like all things are equal and Buffalo is starting everybody, um, you know, top to bottom in their, uh, in their lineup. Next up, Minnesota and Detroit. Minnesota minus seven on the road against Detroit. Now, this, of course, looks like Matt Stafford not going to play. And, you know, certainly from a defensive standpoint, both of these teams looked pretty checked out against, you know, obviously pretty good NFC South foes in New Orleans and Tampa Bay. So I understand that Minnesota just on offense alone here going up against, you know, is it going to be David Blau? You know, who is it going to be? Uh, Chase Daniel, whatever, whatever. Like, does that really matter? Is there anything that we saw from essentially a full game of those guys? Is there anything to say that, like, the Vikings can't absolutely destroy Detroit just based on offense and a mediocre defense? little extra rest, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, literally one extra day. Um, from a leadership standpoint, Kirk Cousins and Mike Zimmer, is that a better leadership squad? You know, even throwing like a Dalvin Cook and Adam Thielen, is that a better leadership squad than Chase Daniel? And I'm assuming Daryl Bevel is coming back from <laughs> their COVID tracing situation. I would trust Minnesota here. So while this number seems high, minus seven on the road for two teams that don't really have much to play for here, I think I'm fine with backing the Vikings against a Lions team that, like, what's the reason to still hang in there? Because that's not a head coach that's going to be around next year for the Lions. The Vikings, you would think that Zimmer would be. So there's a little bit more of an audition for next year type of thing. Younger defense that at least is going to put in the effort. Whereas with the Lions, right, they're on to a lot of second string guys here at this point, And it's pretty ugly. Jets and the Patriots talked about this, and this is funny because this line was like nine on a look-ahead, like super small limit type situation, like completely uh, ridiculous number on one website that literally didn't offer enough to be able to get down on it in any meaningful way here. And of course, now it drops to Patriots minus three. And I understand that that's kind of what you have to make it, whether it's Cam Newton um, or whether it's Jared Stidham. And listen, we saw Jared Stidham there, you know, he made a couple of throws last night, but by and large, it's not like, like, okay, he's definitely the answer. I would expect him to play. 
But I still think the Jets would win this game. I think the Jets playing well enough, and of course classic Jets that they would play just well enough here in this final stretch to not just cost them the first overall pick, but maybe even the second overall pick as well. Uh, And we're not getting an incredibly great money line here, but it's actually not bad for a three-point underdog at plus 150. And for some of these, the spread is going to be the spread. Like the spread's going to, whether it's three, whether it's the next game, or it's nine and a half, part of it is, okay, the spread's worth the bet, but there's also going to be points where you might as well just take the money line. Because if one team shows up unexpectedly, there's going to be more value on the money line than there would be even with the spread. And that's, I think, the play here potentially with the Steelers and the Browns. So let's look at this from a fundamental standpoint, right? The line right now, Cleveland minus nine and a half. So if all things were equal and these two teams are playing sort of, you know, full roster, et cetera, et cetera. No injuries, none of that sort of thing. What's the line in Pittsburgh at Cleveland? Because three weeks ago or two weeks ago, Baltimore at Cleveland was Baltimore minus three. So to say that Cleveland's all of a sudden, having just lost to the Jets, admittedly without wide receivers, I get it. But to say that Cleveland has to be favored in, in that sort of a game against Pittsburgh, again, all things being equal, seems a little incorrect, right? So let's say just uh, that the games should be a pick 'em, just for ease of use. Maybe you do think the Browns are a better team than Pittsburgh and that they should be uh, favored. I would say that maybe they should be a slight underdog just based on that number against the Ravens. So we'll make it, we'll call it even, we'll call it a pick 'em. So the line opens minus six and a half for Cleveland this week. And I think that's pretty clear what the reason is for that. It's that no one expects the Steelers to play, you know, full roster. And of course, full roster means Ben Roethlisberger. And we talked about it a little bit on yesterday's show about going into week 17 and realizing that resting starters doesn't mean backups at every single position. And Mike Tomlin came out and said it today. He said, this is not a preseason game where we have seven, you know, between 55 and 74 guys that we can put out there and that you're going to see backups at every position. That's just not how it works. There's only a roster of 50 some odd players when you factor out kickers and specialty, you know, snappers and all of that kind of thing. And so there's only so many guys that you can sit. And so he said, quite frankly, Roethlisberger is not going to play. And maybe one or two other guys. So let's talk about the Roethlisberger element for just a second here. Roethlisberger is not going to play. So he makes that announcement and the line goes from six and a half to nine and a half. Well, the line was, that was already factored into the opening line at six and a half. If you were willing to take a bet as a sports book on this game, you have to make that line as if Roethlisberger is not going to play because nobody expects him to play. And that's what they did. They made it at minus six and a half. Right? And they said that's certainly enough for Roethlisberger not playing. And then they make it official, and the line goes up even higher than that. What sense does that make? Where did this other three points come? In fact, I would make the case that Tomlin went out of his way to say, yeah, Roethlisberger's not going to play, something we already knew when the line was minus six and a half. But he's also saying, like, hey, it's not like we have all of these other guys that we can just play in place. Like, maybe... You know, let's think about it this for a second. If he's saying two or three other guys don't play, who are those two or three other guys? So offensively, is it James Conner? Okay, let's say it's James Conner. 
Well, they've been playing without James Conner a handful of games this season, and they literally just beat the Colts by giving him the ball five times. So if James Conner is one of the guys who's not playing, who cares? What if it's a wide receiver? Well, from a veteran standpoint, they don't really have a veteran wide receiver that needs to sit, right? Like James Washington, I think, is like the oldest guy in that room with Juju, Deontay Johnson, and Chase Claypool. None of those guys need to sit. We're not risking injury on one of those guys and having that change the course of the season. If one of those guys gets hurt and misses the game, okay, like that sucks, but like they they are still pretty loaded at that position. From a veteran standpoint offensively, maybe it's Eric Ebron. Uh, Okay. I mean, a guy who drops a lot of passes, if he was injured, would that really move the line? Probably not. Not with capable backups in Vance McDonald, for example. Is it going to be offensive linemen? Well, okay, like maybe there's an offensive lineman in there somewhere, but they're not going to just let Mason Rudolph sit back there and get absolutely destroyed by Miles Garrett the entire game. So I really doubt that the left tackle, for example, is going to be out. Maybe there's a guard who's banged up. I certainly think Pouncey's probably still going to play. And again, these are the things that we sort of have to keep an eye on. But so who on the offense that's really going to make a difference? And by the way, if you've been watching the Steelers for the last month or so, and you've been watching Ben Roethlisberger... Haven't you been kind of saying to yourself or out loud to everybody who will listen, I don't think Ben Roethlisberger is any good anymore, right? Can't throw the ball deep. Sure, he made a nice pass to Deontay Johnson this past week, but the offense is just a lot of check down slant type of garbage. Is it really that much of a drop off if Ben Roethlisberger doesn't play? I know Mason Rudolph isn't any good, but like at least he has experience. This isn't a Danucci situation. This isn't a Ryan Finley where we just know this guy stinks. This is a guy who at least won games in the league last year, in part because of a really good defense. So let's talk about the defense for a second. Who's going to miss this game defensively? Well, frankly, they don't have enough bodies at linebacker as is, so nothing's really going to change there. From a secondary standpoint, like, do you take Minka Fitzpatrick out? Like, he's not really battling anything from an injury standpoint. They've been without Hayden at times, so even if he's sitting out, it's not a huge, uh, you know, obviously that hurts a bit, but not a ton. By the way, the matchup against Cleveland isn't in need of a shutdown corner, right, or all your starting defensive backs. Does TJ Watt play? I think that's a big one. T.J. Watt's still battling it out here for Defensive Player of the Year in what seems to be a two-horse race between him and Aaron Donald. The way the Rams have played the last couple of weeks, this is still very much wide open in the possibility that T.J. Watt wins Defensive Player of the Year. Is this something that he cares about? I don't know if he cares about it, but it's enough for J.J. Watt to tweet about it during a game a couple of weeks ago. So it's obviously on their radar in some way, shape, or form. So again, we'll see if he ends up playing. Maybe somebody else, maybe like a Hayward doesn't play, something along those lines. But is that enough? Is Roethlisberger maybe another dude on offense, maybe a couple of guys on defense? Is that worth nine and a half points to a game that we just decided probably should it be pick em at even strength? I'm not so sure. In fact, I'm quite sure that it isn't and i'll probably be on the pittsburgh steelers here and by the way a rivalry game where they can knock cleveland you know out of the playoffs why wouldn't they try to do that now obviously it's not worth doing at the risk of injuring roethlisberger but again if we don't think roethlisberger is very good if we think roethlisberger might be a problem why would be why would we be 
all worried that he's not going to start. And that's going to make some huge difference. Mason Rudolph can make those throws. I'd make the case that he can make more throws. I'd make the case that going back to their days at Oklahoma State, Mason Rudolph can throw a deep ball to James Washington and maybe add a little bit to this offense. And by the way, the Cleveland Browns defense, still not very good. They just lost to the Jets. They let Sam Darnold, I'm not going to say do whatever he wanted to, but do certainly enough to have the Jets win the game. So this number is preposterous. I understand the sentiment. I understand it. At least we can figure out what the deal is, why this goes from, why this opens six and a half, why you would even consider moving this from six and a half to nine and a half. But the good news is, is we can see the holes in this. And we're going to be on the Steelers plus nine and a half. Maybe it goes to 10. How great would that be? I think that's worth kind of waiting on. Maybe the you know, society comes to its senses. Maybe the market bangs this back down and maybe we have to grab an eight and a half, even a seven and a half potentially with the Steelers. But I think at that point, we'll know that we're onto something. And if not, if they keep moving this thing up to 10, you can grab 10 right now. Grab 10. Pittsburgh plus 10 with Mason Rudolph is just fine for me. Arizona and the Los Angeles Rams here as we get in to some four o'clock action. Um, love the split as usual, kind of the best thing that the NFL does with regards to this mess on week 17. Talked about how they're burying a lot of bad football games, which, you know, again, what else are you going to do? A couple of quarterback issues here and the line is up. The line is Rams minus one. And we already know that Jared Goff is not going to play and that John Walford of Wake Forest is in the starting spot. Blake Bortles is on his way, folks. Uh, kind of excited about Bryce Perkins potentially playing because I loved him at Virginia. But this line's minus one for the Rams with John Walford, which tells us what? It tells us Kyler Murray will not be playing in this game either. And isn't this incredible that we've got these two quarterbacks? So a no Kyler Murray Arizona Cardinals against a system quarterback or system offense with the Rams. I think I'm back on the Rams here, right? If Jared Goff can do it, and again, he's a little bit more talented than John Wofford. I completely understand that. But if Jared Goff can run this offense, I think Wofford can do the same. For the Cardinals, you're missing the dynamicism, dynamicness, whatever, uh, (laughs) with Kyler Murray, right? The reason everybody loves betting on the Cardinals, right? Like Cardinals bets and we're we're getting two points of value every single week, it seems, because people love betting the Cardinals and Kyler Murray because of the explosive offense that doesn't actually gain that many yards. And the Rams defense is still there. And isn't that the best unit of the four units that are on the field? Aaron Donald, Jalen Ramsey, right? We've seen Ramsey up against Hopkins. You think it's better because you know, Stevler or whoever is playing a quarterback for the Cardinals is in there. This is Rams to me, f- minus one all day, every day. Now, if this is somehow Rams minus one and Kyler Murray is playing, now we've got ourselves a different conversation, right? The dynam- dynamicism is back. Don't know why I keep trying that word. Uh, but at that point, now you're getting the Cardinals as small underdogs, even as a pick with a I don't say functional quarterback, but a quarterback that we at least know what we're getting out of. Now, if he's got a leg injury and now he can't throw, and maybe that's how this ends up. Maybe it's he starts, but he's got to throw from the pocket. Now we've got ourselves a different conversation here. Again, a week 17 problem, something that we have to deal with going into this week and keep an eye on. Next up, Green Bay and Chicago. This thing, minus five and a half for Green Bay. 
on the road against Chicago. Now, the way that Chicago's playing, you think live dog, must win game, et cetera, et cetera. Problem is, right, the Green Bay is coming in needing to win a game as well to get a week off next week. And I just think it's so easy right now for Green Bay. Like, it's they're so good. Um, defensively, it's getting better. This isn't a Bears team that I think is going to take advantage of that in a big in, in any meaningful way. We saw this match. Like, this was the matchup from... You know, right when Trubisky got the job back. This is the one matchup that we don't talk about when we talk about how the Bears offense has improved in such a way over the last month or so. We all just go, okay, like, and it makes sense, right? Like Trubisky was his first game back. Like, why would we want, uh, why would we expect him to be that good against Green Bay? And maybe he's better in this game and maybe this ends up being a closer game than I think it's going to be. But I think, listen, it's going to be a popular play. So it's not something that I'm like, think that's some sort of secret or whatever but green bay minus five and a half i think is going to be the play that i'm going to make in this one jags and the colts we got ourselves a mow down game a little showdown game in green bay and chicago though they're not sort of showing down for anything you know specific rams and cardinals but a showdown game there as well this is a mow down game right the colts are supposed to absolutely truck the jags what if the Jags have been sort of uh, lulling us to sleep here over the last couple of weeks, right? This is a team that at full strength was playing close games. They were playing games within one score against a bunch of different teams, right? And then it got to a point in the last couple of weeks going up against Derrick Henry, going up against Baltimore, and then going up against themselves last week in that it's a 10-10 game with their backup quarterback and their backup running back. And then... All of a sudden, it's 41 to 17, like an incredible, quote unquote, collapse. So was that the Bears or was that the Jags going, we're all set here, right? Treating it as a preseason game. Now, I don't know like what substitutions were made. Did they start playing more backup guys in the secondary? Did they start you know, running more vanilla offense because they didn't want to win the game? And certainly the Bears were more than happy to oblige them in that situation. Well, they don't have that situation anymore. Talked about it yesterday. They are on the clock. And I talked about my number being, you know, 12 and a half, 13 points. The number here is 14. We're getting a full 14 with the Jags. Why? Because the Colts are in a must win. That's where this value comes from. And we'll have to take advantage of that because this game could very easily be 24 to 13. It could very easily be 27 to 17. And we cover easily. The Colts win comfortably. And no one is sort of the wiser, if you will, except for Jags backers in this situation. And so there isn't going to be the getting hit in the face a million times by Derrick Henry. There isn't going to be the getting the hit in the face a million times by J.K. Dobbins. Uh, and and Gus Edwards, and then having to watch you know Lamar Jackson take off, and all of a sudden it's thirty to nothing. Now maybe maybe this team's quit for the entire season, but that's not what I saw in the first half against the Bears as it went to halftime ten ten, or at least almost ten ten because the Bears scored a field goal at the end of the end of the first half. That now that I'm thinking of the play, going yeah, that's exactly what you would do if you were tanking a game. Um, but the point is, right, like this divisional matchup, like Colt, the Jags have already beat them this season. Like there's, this is just too many points and it's going to be an uncomfortable bet to make. But I think it's just a bet that needs to be made. Now, I'm not telling you the Jags are going to win this game outright. I just think this game is going to be closer than obviously the point spread based on, I think we're going to get the same version of the Jags that have been competitive with teams like Houston 
and I mean, just go up and down the list, right? Minnesota, et cetera, like all these games that were way closer than uh, people thought they were going to be. Next up, Chargers and the Chiefs. And this one is laugh out loud funny as the Chargers are now minus three and a half on the road to the Chiefs. And so you go, all right, who's not going to play? Well, obviously Patrick Mahomes has the week off. I'd be willing to bet that Travis Kelsey has the week off. I'd be willing to bet that Tyreek Hill has the week off. But is that enough to make the Chargers three and a half point road favorites? A team that like we love backing when they're getting points, right? Anthony Lynn's going to play yeah, a close game. And just because it's the Chiefs second string quarterback wide receivers who, by the way, all pretty good, right? No Sammy Watkins, Robinson, some of these other guys, the Pringles of the world, right? That always sort of come up when one guy gets hurt. Well, now you have a couple of guys out. The plays are still going to be run. I'm sure the quarterbacks know how to run the plays defensively, right? Probably no Chris Jones, probably no Tyron Matthew. So will the Chargers be able to move the ball up and down the field? Probably. But again, they're great at slowing themselves down at this point. So why am I dying to bet on the Chargers here at minus three and a half? I was thinking we might be getting Chargers plus three and a half at such a low number, given the fact that the chart that the chiefs are going to sit a bunch of guys. So we'll see who that ends up being as far as who gets sat. We'll see where this line goes, but this might just have to be a stay away because like, how do you bet the Chargers minus three and a half, even against the chiefs JV squad, Las Vegas and the Denver Broncos here, Jerry Judy, if you want to catch a football, I think this week might be the time to do it. This is a rematch of an atrocious beat that I took last year. This game was a Denver, I want to say minus three. They had a 16-point lead. I think it was literally 16 to nothing. Had the ball. Gave it back to the Raiders. Raiders scored a touchdown. I believe it converted a two-point conversion. Denver had the ball again. I think it was some sort of penalty. They had to punt it back to the Raiders. The Raiders went down and scored again, went for the two-point conversion, did not get it, lost. I think the score was 16 to 14. Swung a ton of money in the Super Contest last year. This is that rematch. The good news, if you're going back to the well, if I'm going back to the well with the Denver Broncos here, is at least they're getting two and a half points. And I'm not sure why that's necessarily the case. Because again, as long as Jerry Judy could just catch a pass, and again, just because he dropped a bunch last week and that it hasn't been a great season for him, doesn't mean he's going to drop the one or two key passes that he's going to get this coming week. And so I think Broncos have to be a play here, plus two and a half. Maybe we end up getting three. Like, what do the Raiders care, right? And the Raiders are certainly capable of blowing games. Did it to the, against the Chargers, did it against the Dolphins. Why would they be road favorites in this game against Denver? Saints and the Panthers. This one moved to four o'clock here because that NFC group, we want to kind of throw them all together here. And the Saints are competing for a top seed. And that's why they're six and a half point favorites. But they were about six and a half, seven point favorites when these two teams met. What, a couple of months ago, six weeks ago, something along those lines. That game went back and forth. Joey Sly had a what 60 yarder to try to tie the game that came up a half yard short from going to overtime. We cashed our Carolina uh, plus six, plus seven, whatever it was, tickets there quite comfortably. So what's changed from that game to this, right? Why is this line the exact same despite the change in venue? Haven't really seen all that much from Drew Brees. That's going to make me all that 
excited about it. And Drew Brees, I believe, was the quarterback in that game against Carolina. Teddy Bridgewater certainly was. Panthers playing hard still, right? Backdoor cover against the Packers that if it wasn't for a QB sneak gone horribly awry, game might have been even more interesting than that. Go on the road, take care of business against Washington in a way that frankly was more impressive than Seattle did the week before. Right? I mean, pretty similar in that they did allow Washington to score late the same way that Seattle did after taking a big lead. But again, this team with Matt Rule is under the category of teams here that aren't very good, but are working towards something and know they have the coach of the future here, right? This isn't a dead man walking situation that you get with a lot of these teams. So where's the where's the line and why is the line the way that it is, right? And why isn't this seven, right? So one, it's extended out to six and a half despite the venue because of the quote unquote must win nature of the Saints and obviously looked impressive offensively with Kamara doing whatever he wanted on Friday. So you can see why this is getting boosted up people still not all that particularly high on Carolina because if all they're doing all season long from a successful standpoint is beating the occasional bad team and hanging in there to cover spreads, like that's great for us, but it's not going to really do all that much for them in the market going forward. So at six and a half here, I think this is inflated. I think this gets to seven at some point or another, at which point we buy Carolina plus seven in a game that I expect to be more competitive than obviously the market thinks. Seattle and the San Francisco 49ers here, right? Injuries piling up for San Francisco, right? So it doesn't look like Debo Samuel will be back. Um, you know, Mostert gone for the season. And now Brandon Ayuk added to that. Good news for the San Francisco 49ers is they won the game last week without really using Brandon Ayuk and almost costing me my fantasy championship, which I won last night, by the way. Thanks for asking. And so... <laughs> What's left from for San Francisco's offense? Well, it's still C.J. Beathard, and like that's not pretty necessarily. And it's a home game, but it's not at home. It's in Arizona. It's, uh, you know, against Seattle, who, again, like what do we make of that offense right now? Is this going to be a situation like San Francisco did against Kyler Murray where they're able to hold them down and we play this low-scoring first 1-20 to 20 type of game? And again, we're getting five and a half points here on what is essentially a neutral field. If this goes to six, that becomes interesting. But we've got yet another game here where one team must win and the other team doesn't. So why isn't this number seven? Why isn't this jacked up, right? Because it's already jacked up. It doesn't need to get jacked up all the way to a key number in the same way that the Saints and Panthers doesn't need to get jacked up to a key number because the people that know this is a jacked up number, that these numbers should be three, three and a half, and are know that like, okay, like, yes, you're jacking up to six and a half to five and a half because you, the books know they're going to get money on the favorite. There's no reason for them to go to seven because they know if they go to seven, they know that if they go to six and a half in this game with San Francisco, that we're going to pounce on that massive overreaction. So right now it's just an overinflation. It's not a massive overinflation, but I'm not going to go and pay the price for the Seahawks and for the Saints, just because they quote unquote need to win this game. That by the way, like if Green Bay wins, it becomes moot for these other teams. Now Green Bay is playing at the same time. So it's not like, you know, we're going to know when at kickoff when this happens, but maybe we know at halftime. Maybe Green Bay is up three touchdowns 
And the coaches aren't going, like, they're not going to run Russell Wilson out there for the second half if they know the Packers are beating up on the Bears. And maybe that's an opportunity for San Francisco to go through the back door. Maybe they end up winning the game. We see that kind of thing happening all the time. Same thing with the Saints. Why would you play Drew Brees? Now, in this case, maybe you go to Taysom Hill. Maybe Jameis Winston's involved in the second half of this game because Green Bay is pounding Chicago. Now, there's a sort of parlay here, potentially, if you want to get super frisky, and that's a first half Green Bay, maybe even an adjusted line where you grab like a first half Green Bay minus seven, maybe even more than seven, something significant that would make you believe that Green Bay is quote unquote definitely going to win this game. And why would we, you know, have our fourth quarter, our guys out there for the fourth quarter? And then you grab, you know, plus the points with Carolina, plus the points with San Francisco. Like there might kind of be something tricky that you could do there. Not something that's a lock by any means, but once you start doing three team parlay type stuff, and in the case of Green Bay, like you're going to get plus money on that. Now we're talking about like a four to one, five to one type of a bet here based on kind of this idea that teams are scoreboard watching out there. Uh, Speaking of scoreboard watching, Tennessee and Houston here. Tennessee, minus seven and a half. What version of Houston are you going to get, right? Like, I don't know the answer to that. Like, we won't know much about this game really at all. Like, this seems like a game that we probably should skip. Historically speaking, I believe Tennessee has trucked uh, Houston in these games where it didn't matter to Houston. I don't know that J.J. Watt's speech is going to make that much of a difference to a defense. But listen, banged up, suspensions, all of that kind of thing. Like, you can call out your team for not trying but like they also just might be bad. And like JJ Watt is, you know, can feel free to sack someone at some point as well, right? But if he's not, you know, they're going to call his name for the first time all game because he went offside on a play, like that's on you too, JJ. Like it's not like he had three sacks and a fumble recovery and everybody else stunk that game. That's on him as well. And it just might not be there for them in a game that the Titans need, right? And that's why you see this number admittedly right elevated to minus seven and a half are we sure deshaun watson's okay and if he's not this team's going to hell in a handbasket in this game and so for me i'm going to be on the titans whether it's in a tease form or biting the bullet at minus i mean i'd like to get minus seven in this one i'm seeing minus seven and a half minus 105 so maybe that's possible um by no means a favorite game of mine on this one on this day uh, and then the Sunday night football game, right? The last game, the the winner take all. And in this case, the winner take the NFC East. And in this case, not even the winner because if Philly wins, it doesn't matter. It's only if Washington wins. And who are they starting for at quarterback? Oh God, it might be Taylor Henneke. But based on the line right now, Washington minus two, it looks like Alex Smith is the presumptive starter in this game. And this one isn't all that complicated, right? It's rest. Do you trust Philadelphia to try their best in this game. With Jalen Hurts under center, I think they do, right? I think we could be looking at a low scoring game. Obviously the total at 42 and a half sort of indicates that being the case. And so for me here, Philly plus two up to eight, right? We always see some of these two, two and a half. What do we do, right? We want to tease them up to eight. That would be a decent thing to close a tease out on for Sunday night football. Again, the do or die nature of Washington is going to make them a favorite here. If this was an all things being equal game, Washington can't be favored here. Philadelphia was just three point favorites at Dallas. So what about Washington is making them a favorite here just because Alex Smith is back and because they need the game? Like I just don't see that being good enough 
to warrant an extra couple of points. Now, maybe this gets kicked up to three points and we can actually get some legitimate value here backing Philadelphia plus the three. But if it was a game two weeks ago, wouldn't Philadelphia be like a two, two and a half point favorite? So again, Washington is favored because of the situation in this game. So again, lots to watch for week 17. Um, not a ton of like on the field football handicapping to be done in week 17, right? It's just evaluating where the value is, making as many bets as you can possibly make that encompass this value. And I don't mean make as many as you can make as in like below the entire bankroll or whatever, but I just mean like take advantage of the five, six, eight, ten, however many there are out there that provide you some value based on kind of what I just said and what your own sort of um, handicapping uh, results in. And of course, the news that pops up over the course of the rest of the week, because it's only Tuesday, and there's a bunch of different stuff that could happen between now and then. So we're gonna take a quick break. And then we're gonna rattle through the college football bowl games the rest of the week. Uh, a little bit to talk about there, very similar to week 17 in the NFL. That's right after this. Hey gang, pardon the interruption, but I've got to do a quick ad for this podcast. Normally at the end of each show, I'll mention to subscribe, rate, and review the pod offhandedly. And if you have done all three things, then you're a rock star. If not, could you? It helps. But also, if you enjoy the content, whether it's saving you from following the lemmings over the cliff with that short road favorite, or the various guests, or whatever reason, could you do me a favor to help grow the show by telling a friend, or even an enemy? One share with someone you talk sports with can go a long way to help build our little community. It would be greatly appreciated. Now, let's get back to the betting talk. All right, as for the rest of bowl season here, we've started Tuesday with two games, Wednesday, two more games, Thursday, four games, Friday, you know, Saturday, we're just chock full of college football here. And this is a lot like week 17 right? Like who's motivated, who's unmotivated from a point spread standpoint, right? Like there's going to be a lot of wonky point spreads because that's taken into account various opt-outs guys, you know, whether, you know, during the season it was COVID and now it's okay. Is this guy not going to play because he's got, you know, NFL considerations, right? So a lot of these really good teams are without some of their best players. And so you're not going to get the best value. And what I mean by that is there's going to be a lot of teams here and a lot of games that you're like, well, wait, this opened up, uh, this team was an underdog, and now they're a favorite. Or this opened up a massive underdog, and now this team is only a slight underdog. And it's like, man, I really wish I had gotten that number. Well, so do I, right? Like, But <laughs> we would have needed to know what we didn't know at that time, right? We would have been guessing on who's going to play and who's not going to play in those various situations. So the best that we can do is take the number that we get now or day of the game and then just kind of deal with it, right? Just kind of be okay with the number as it exists now and not worry about closing line value or missing out on the best of the number because the best of the number was in a different world where a handful of these guys were actually going to play. Now, if you could have read the tea leaves when these you know announcements came out, that'd be a different story. And frankly, that would be a different year because most of the time I'm super fired up about bowl season. I know, you know, quote unquote, everything that there is to know about even, you know, sort of the lower end teams, the early bowl games, and I'm making bets in that first week and I'm in different contests and all of that stuff I'm really into. 
this year just wasn't that case. Yes, we bet college football this season and you know, you learn certain things about the teams or whatever, but you just don't know from basically obviously a COVID situation, you know, what you're going to get on a weekly basis. And so it's kind of no different with bowl season. We're like, why would I bet on a bowl game two weeks from its announcement, knowing that I don't know who's going to be playing in that game, whether it has anything to do with COVID or just general NFL situational opt-outs. And so I put out three plays uh, on Saturday for the games because at that point we sort of knew what we were going to get. There was Georgia State minus three and a half. They gave up the first touchdown of the game and then basically blew Western Kentucky out of the water. Why did we bet Georgia State? Well, frankly, I bet Georgia State a handful of times this year. I think they're a pretty good offensive team and I think Western Kentucky is a pretty terrible defensive team or certainly terrible offensive team as well. And Sure enough, right? Georgia State wins relatively easily. The exciting game of the day, of course, was the Coastal Carolina Liberty game. That was just purely people drinking the Kool-Aid on Coastal Carolina, not saying that they're a bad team, but Liberty underrated this year because they had suffered a couple uh, or a loss to a, you know, power five level team, whereas Coastal Carolina didn't get the opportunity to play those teams in the same way that other teams in the Sun Belt did. Closest thing to a sort of showdown type game was, of course, the BYU game where Coastal Carolina won by a hair. Well, Liberty played the Virginia Techs of the world, the NC States of the world, and competed with those teams. So I consider Liberty to be to sort of be on the level of an ACC team, right? Like beat up on Syracuse, play a close game, get the win against Virginia Tech, little upset victory there, and lose a close game to NC State, right? Like that's kind of where they are as a program, as an independent Whereas Coastal Carolina got all the hype because they're you know undefeated and like, oh, maybe they should let them in the playoffs and all of that sort of thing. So that creates value. They are seven-point favorites against Liberty. And of course, Liberty hangs in that game, not just hangs in that game, but of course, leading and leading by a fair amount for much of that game ends up being incredibly dramatic, goes to overtime, and we cover that game there as well. And then UTSA has plus 14 underdogs there, just a too high of a price for a UTSA team that is coming on from a program standpoint you knew it was going to give 110%. So what we're looking for from this bowl season is teams giving 110%. I don't really care about the point spreads and the values as such. So we start with 5.30 game here, Oklahoma State and Miami. And listen, this is three hours to kick off right now, so I'm actually going to tweet this pick out um, so that hopefully you've seen that by the time you're listening to this, if this game has already started and frankly, hopefully it's a winner and you know, it's, <laughs> this isn't a situation where it's like, wow, wow, he rushed to give out a play that ended up losing. So Oklahoma state is a minus one favorite here. They were a little bit higher, I believe earlier on the week or the week, uh, leading into this game. For me, I like Miami plus one here, a couple of different reasons. And again, all of this stuff is motivational because the football stuff is kind of already baked into all this, right? We've had a full season of football to sort of know what each team does, right? Oklahoma State, Spencer Sanders, you either have, you know, you have an opinion about him or you don't, or you have a high opinion or a low opinion. Mine isn't particularly high. Now, Tylen Wallace, their star wide receiver, looks like he's going to play, and we're never really sure when it comes to this stuff. But, and if he does, obviously that's a boon for Spencer Sanders. But what I've seen from Sanders when he has hasn't had Tylen Wallace in the game and when they haven't played a team that's say good for example they get smoked and so we have to decide whether Miami is good now Miami's last game was against North Carolina where they got absolutely trucked because North Carolina's high octane offense is really really tough to stop tons of quality players 
on that offense and a quality system, right? Sam Howell, really good quarterback, you know, sort of the next Baker Mayfield type of a guy. And so they go into Miami and they absolutely kill Miami. Well, what's happened since for Miami? Well, for one, their quarterback, De'Ara King, announced that he's coming back next season for Miami. So that's a boost to that program, right? That would make you want to play in this game. Same thing as being embarrassed against North Carolina a few weeks ago, right? You would want to get that taste out of your mouth. So you're going up against an Oklahoma State team that, again, I don't think is that good. And so to get them as a small underdog here, I like Miami, even money here on the money line to win this game against Oklahoma State. People will tell you, um, you know, Gundy, really good bowl record. Obviously, there's a bunch of different situations in which, like, that has come to fruition. Um, for me, I think water is probably going to find its level eventually when it comes to Gundy in these games. Same sort of thing with Diaz over for Miami where he hasn't had the best bowl record. But again, all these games, and especially this year, are different circumstances, right? There hasn't always been this excitement, this hope for Miami in the way that Derek King uh, announcing that he's going to return for next season would make them really be interested in this game. So I like Miami in this game to start uh, the day. Colorado and Texas. This one is, I got to admit it to you, kind of a crapshoot here, right? So Texas opens as double-digit favorite, right? Like I think it was all the way up to 14, goes to 10. And we get opt-outs from Texas, right? Their best uh, essentially defensive lineman, sort of linebacker, hybrid type guy announces he's out. So this line drops and then you go, okay, how much is Texas really going to care? Because Texas most of the time in these games is the in the role of underdog, right? We remember them playing Georgia and beating up Georgia and a Georgia team that just didn't care about that game. You get Sam Ellinger going, well, we're back. And it's like, okay, great. And then you lose four games the next season um, or even more. So the problem here is of course, Texas is now a favorite, and we've already seen some elements of like maybe they're not all that into the game from guys opting out. Problem is, Sam Ellinger still going to be into this game, and you will find yourself if you're back in Colorado, which I think I might be, even at, again, the worst of the number. But again, I didn't know that all of these things were sort of happening, and we saw this last week with the Houston-Hawaii game. Didn't bet it right? Just sort of sat back and watched from afar as this went from a 14-point spread down to a 7-point spread, turn on the game at halftime or in the second half, and it's 21 nothing for Hawaii. The underdog was up three touchdowns, and I kind of think like that might be the situation here because Colorado, new coach, right? Had way better of a season, a mini season in the Pac-12 than they thought they were going to. Team that was able to score I think it's going to be able to score against Texas as well. And if they care about this game and Texas doesn't, then Colorado's going to win this game. And so we're basically now just kind of guessing, unfortunately, on whether they're going to show up. So maybe this is an opportunity to put a little bit on Colorado plus seven and a half, but then watch this game early on very closely to see what Texas's interest level actually is, right? Is Sam Ellinger actually taking on multiple tacklers and dragging guys like he normally is? Because if he is, now all of a sudden Texas at minus seven or so becomes a really, really good bet for a team that was favored by double digits against Colorado. Again, a Pac-12 team, so you have to take that with a grain of salt, right? How good is the Pac-12 in general? We already know that we probably should be fading them across the board here. So a little bit more complicated from this standpoint, live betting, probably the best option. But if you're gonna go into this, I think I would lean Colorado plus seven and a half because of 
where this line is going and how it's sort of mirroring the Houston and Hawaii game from last week. Uh, similar line, in fact, exactly the same line to start the day on Wednesday noon kick. Wisconsin minus seven and a half, Wake Forest plus seven and a half. Wake Forest has had enough results that you would think, okay, pretty live underdog here. Wisconsin struggles to score, or at least has shown that they've struggled to score. But we might be looking at Wisconsin's full version of their team. And a lot of these teams use these bowl games as sort of a, a jump off to next season, right? Springboard to spring practice to next season. And when you've got sort of a young quarterback the way that Wisconsin does, right, you should get full attention in this one. And so you know, I think Wisconsin's been overly favored in a lot of these games, right? We've been we've been fading them as 10, 14 point favorites as they've won games by seven and been in overtime and that kind of thing. For me here, I think this has to be Wisconsin or nothing because I think there's just better players across the board for Wisconsin. And this isn't a team that I think just sort of phones in a game, right? Like that's not really what Wisconsin is as a program. And Wake Forest should be excited for this bowl game. They should be trying their hardest here. But defensively, they're just not very good. And I think Wisconsin's defense can shut down what they do on offense. So I kind of like the favorite here in this one. Another one I like the favorite in, and the favorites changed. And again, normally you'd sit there and be like, I just can't bet this. I can't bet Oklahoma minus three, knowing that Florida was a favorite when this game opened up two weeks ago. But the reality is guys are bailing out of this game left, right, and center. And listen, I wish they hadn't because I would still be on Oklahoma in this game because they've shown me enough in the last month of their season defensively to make me believe that they can compete with Florida even at full strength, right? Like Florida at full strength is going to score. We know that. We know Oklahoma fully capable of that as well. And it's just a matter of what defense is going to play better. And I think that's Oklahoma. Now you have all these opt-outs in the skill position for Florida. It looks like Kyle Trask still going to play in this game. But again, by the time tomorrow at 8 o'clock rolls around, who's to know if that's even going to be the case? And so for me, even at minus three, at this sort of quote-unquote bad number relative to Florida being favored early on in the bowl season... I think I still got to go Oklahoma minus three because I just trust, again, younger team more into it with regards to creating a bridge for next season. Uh, and Oklahoma minus three, I think, still has to be a play. Another team that switched from favorite to underdog and vice versa, Mississippi State was favored against Tulsa. SEC team, right? Going up against a team from the American Conference. Okay, like not that big of a you know deal, blah, 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 blah. Like this should be relatively easy for Mississippi State. Bad news for Mississippi State is here, Tulsa's actually a pretty good team. And last we saw them um, taking Cincinnati down to the wire in the American Conference Championship game. And last we've seen Mississippi State is basically fail over and over and over again from an offensive standpoint. The only time that we've seen them play remotely well is against Missouri, a team that has a legitimately bad defense. Bad news for Tulsa, their best player has opted out for NFL purposes from a defensive standpoint. That being said, right, I think the line move is correct. I think Tulsa should have been the favorite in this game the entire time. Just from a defensive standpoint, I just don't think Mississippi State will be able to move the ball like they do against some of these other poorly coached or sort of poorly systemed teams to handle what Mississippi State does. And so for me, at minus two and a half, like, it could be rough because you might just get out there and be like, wow, the SEC athletes are just that much better than the Tulsa athletes. But I think with Zach Smith at quarterback for Tulsa, he's good enough to get enough points going here for Tulsa that they can win this game. And at minus two and a half, anything under a field goal, I'm happy to take that. 
Ball State and San Jose State. The story, again, God forbid we get sort of the two underdog type teams and we get to see them against a power five team no of course we have to see them face each other and not really learn all that much about them from a season finale type standpoint ball state getting 10 points here from san jose state i think is a bet that we have to make uh san jose state undefeated team right so they're getting that juice if you will right like they're getting the oh they could be one of a handful of undefeated teams here by the end of the season you know blah 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 Okay, that's great, but 10 points to a Ball State team that will scrap you to their death. Now, the problem is, MAC football teams almost never want to be betting on any of them. This Ball State team, I think, though, is a little bit different. I think they hang in there with San Jose State, and 10 points good enough for me to make a bet. Next one up, West Virginia. Now, these games are, again, all on Thursday. That one was a 2 o'clock game. This one's a 4 o'clock game. West Virginia, 7-point favorites at, well, I shouldn't say at, but against Army. If you haven't been paying attention, right, Army, two-loss team, three-loss team, something along those lines, left out of bowl season for reasons that, again, no one has explained correctly. Um, West Virginia came into this game with a completely different opponent. That opponent had to be removed because of COVID. And now Army, who had been looking for a bowl game, going out of their way to want a bowl game. We've seen a dozens of teams right you didn't have to do anything to qualify for a bowl this season normally you need a a record and a certain uh, gpa or something along those lines and you had to qualify to be bowl eligible well due to covid they made everyone bowl eligible and somehow army still didn't get into a bowl did not get an invite and so they've wanted to play right they were upset about this they've wanted to play do i know whether west virginia wants to play in this game or are they just okay with playing this game and in these games i'm going to take the team that's getting seven points who definitely wants to play does west virginia want to tackle army for 60 straight minutes right do they have the offense to pull away from army knowing that they might only get seven eight possessions in this game if army has their you know druthers by having long elaborate offensive drives so for me plus seven with army and if west virginia doesn't care we might be looking at a little money line action here with army as well speaking of money line arkansas four and a half point underdogs another team that is into this season has been into this season the entire time undefeated against the spread for a really long time couple of different upsets i think they get the upset here against tcu a team that again middle of the road type team if they lost wouldn't be the most surprising thing ever what's their purpose for sort of being into this game right like they still have the same coach and gary patterson that they always have have had all kinds of different results in bowl games so it's not like we have to absolutely back gary patterson under no and you know any circumstances for me arkansas into this game plus four and a half a bet also money line Look for a little Moneyline parlay action here as well. Get to that here in a second. Cincinnati and Georgia. This is normally the spot where you go, okay, Georgia in a game that isn't for the national championship, isn't for a semifinal. They don't usually care about these games, right? Texas beats them up you know, a couple years ago, et cetera, et cetera. That's why I think this game is just minus seven in favor of Georgia because you know people like Cincinnati, Desmond Ritter, et cetera, et cetera. Problem is, one is it's not like Georgia lost the SEC championship game and are like, oh, we were so close to the you know semifinals and national championship opportunity. That hasn't been the situation for Georgia because they lost relatively early on in the season and a couple of different times. 
part of the reason they lost is because they didn't have a quarterback. Like, it was a fun little story there with Stetson Bennett, little guy just kind of running around, walk-on type guy. But then they realized, you know what? He actually sucks. Sorry, Stetson, you suck. Um, you know, <laughs> college try, all of that stuff. And they had JT Daniels sitting on the bench, like rehabbing, I believe it was a shoulder injury, something along those lines. Former USC recruit. So you know he's got something. And now that they've got him back there, now the offense is cooking. You know the Georgia defense is always going to be good. And Cincinnati's offense, I'm not going to say they're one-dimensional, but they certainly, you know, the running game of Desmond Ritter, their quarterback, is kind of the explosive element to their game. And so I think Georgia actually does care about this game because it is... Again, a bridge to next season with JT Daniels. And so I think minus seven is actually pretty cheap here with Georgia. And I'll try them there because even if a couple of guys opt out here or there, this is a loaded roster, right? Like this is Georgia. We're talking the same level as Clemson, Alabama, or darn near close to it, where like the next guy, if you're a freshman and you're coming in at this point, like, you know, the old saying, right? You're kind of no longer a freshman at this point. So for me, I like Georgia minus seven in a game that I think they're unusually, like they're actually ready for. Next one's a tricky one. Another, you know, again, uh, first one was noon on uh, New Year's Day on Friday. This one's at one o'clock on New Year's Day on Friday. Auburn and Northwestern here. Now, Northwestern has moved to a three and a half point favorite. Again, another situation where I believe they were underdogs to open this. But again, people look around and go like, well, what are we all excited about Auburn for? Now, this again might be a situation where it's just SEC talent, overwhelming, you know, mid-level Big, Big Ten type talent. And I completely understand that. I haven't made a bet on this. You'll have to sort of follow along at MRUS Authentic to see if I actually make a play on this because right now at three and a half for Northwestern, like this might talk me into a Bo Nix situation here just based on the athletes that are on the field, right? Everybody wants to bet Northwestern. They want that story, right? In theory, the defense can hold down Auburn's offense. But again, Outside of Ohio State, like they haven't really faced anything like this. And coming off of that loss to Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship game, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how focused Northwestern necessarily is on this game. Um, Auburn, obviously, coaching change, right? Kind of a mess. Again, this is all reasons why not to like Auburn and why this number has shifted to three and a half. Again, it's just a matter of do I want to lay three and a half with Northwestern? Now to the big games on New Year's Day here, Notre Dame and Alabama. And of course, the big story, of course, is just the size of this point spread, 20 points for Alabama. And so the question here is like, what can Notre Dame do to hang with Alabama? And you have to go, okay, well, explosive offensively for Alabama. Is the Notre Dame defense going to be the best defense that Alabama has seen all season long? I kind of think they are. And again, we talked about the North Carolina offense when it was full go. Notre Dame shut that team down in the second half on, I believe it was Thanksgiving Friday. And so I'm not saying if you can shut down North Carolina, you can shut down Alabama. I'm not expecting anybody to shut down anybody, to be completely honest with you, because I think Notre Dame gets enough on offense. But from a defensive standpoint, I think Notre Dame is the best that Alabama will have seen this season. From an offensive standpoint for Notre Dame, yeah, they got smoked by Clemson. That shot this line up over what it probably should be, which is about 14 to 17 points, kind of depending on what the results were going to be. 
And of course, Notre Dame gets smoked by Clemson. Not exactly the end of the world. People get smoked by Clemson all the time. Notre Dame had beaten Clemson. Now you can talk to me about Trevor Lawrence not being there and all that stuff. I'm more than aware of that. But the point is they did win the game. We're not asking Notre Dame to win this game. We're just asking them to hang around with Alabama. Now Notre Dame in that Clemson game, the second Clemson game in the first quarter, did everything they possibly could do to screw that up, right? Missed incredibly short field goals. Bad turnovers, just dumb stuff defensively, like penalties, anything that you could possibly imagine to keep I don't want to say Clemson in it, because Clemson's always in the game, but to keep them from having a significant lead even early on. And of course, that all adds up because eventually Clemson starts playing well and the avalanche starts to happen. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, right, Clemson wins by 20. And that's how this number gets created. Speaking of which, that's how this next number gets created. Ohio State and Clemson. This thing at seven and a half for Clemson. Now, there's a very real possibility I'm sitting there watching this game. And maybe Alabama's already blown out Notre Dame, and maybe they haven't. And Clemson is just slinging it all over on Ohio State. And you're going, I can't believe I did this. But how are you know are how these how are these teams really all that different than they were from last season, right? Ohio State and Clemson met obviously in the semifinals last year. A lot of people make the case that Ohio State got screwed from an officiating standpoint in that game and should have met and probably gotten destroyed by LSU in the very next game. So at seven and a half points here, I think I'll take Ohio State plus the seven and a half in a game that I think should be really competitive, especially since one of them has to be. Like, I know that's not a rule, but it would be really a real bummer if both Clemson and Alabama absolutely destroyed the team that they were both facing and covered both spreads here. So, um, I don't love fading Alabama. It's not something that we've done really at any point during this season. But again, I think we saw enough from Florida being able to score on Alabama to think that Notre Dame, even if it turns into just Notre Dame staying scrappy, trying to score late, being down 24 points, something along those lines, I think we got to go Notre Dame plus the 20, and I think we got to go Ohio State plus the 7.5. If I had to pick a favorite, I think I would take Clemson, but I think there's still just more to this Ohio State team than maybe that we've seen in part because of the season just being so weird. And then the afterthought games, unfortunately, Saturday, we have a handful more here, four more games. Kentucky, NC State, and listen, I've probably faded Kentucky before in a bowl game and probably not had a great time doing it. I just like this NC State team. I think they've been underrated for the entire season. I don't see any reason why they wouldn't show up for this game. And being two and a half point underdogs, I like NC State in this game. Mississippi and Indiana. I just love Indiana's coaching. Uh, they love that guy, man. They just, they love that dude. And, you know, it's a chance to go against Lane Kiffin, which never really that exciting. The number, the number has gotten a bit of a way from us here. And Mississippi, by and large, with that offense, can stay in different games. But I think the Indiana defense and the excitement that this team will play with in this game gets them the win. It's just a matter of do I trust them to win by more than eight points does seem a little bit high given the backdoor potential in this game. Oregon and Iowa State here. Iowa State four-point favorites here. And I think, again, this might be a mistake, liking a Pac-12 team. But I just like this Oregon team, backing them in the Pac-12 championship, backing them as an underdog here with an opportunity to beat a Big 12 team in Iowa State. 
that frankly I was disappointed with Brock Purdy in the Big 12 championship game and his decision-making or sort of lack thereof. For me, give me the points here with Oregon plus four. I think I'll include that in the Moneyline Parlay as well. And then North Carolina and Texas A&M here. This is probably just going to have to be a Texas A&M bet. But by the time this game rolls around, we're going to have a better idea of all of the opt-outs. looks like North Carolina having a ton of the opt-outs here. This could be that game for Texas A&M where it's, why didn't we make it into the college football playoff, right? They should have, you know, the old bee in their bonnet, right? Like the old thorn in their side, whatever you want to call it, that is going to give them sort of extra jump here against a North Carolina team that's shown kind of... I mean, first of all, nothing defensively, but from an offensive standpoint, if a bunch of their guys are going to sit out, how am I supposed to trust North Carolina to hang with Texas A&M, given that North Carolina has shown that they aren't really potentially into this game, and Texas A&M really is, as they're trying to join that upper echelon, right, where it isn't strange for Texas A&M to be considered for the college football playoff. So that's the idea for uh, for the uh Bowl season. Of course, we're going to get to the national championship game. We'll eventually talk about that when we need to talk about that. Obviously, the Monday after the first week of the NFL playoffs. So that's going to be included in all of the fun stuff there. Uh, tune in tomorrow or at some point over the next few days because, again, we're off Thursday and Friday. Back on Sunday to see what exactly we did with regards to the NFL Week 17. But Wednesday show, the year-end, year-in-review clip show, um, basically very little of me and a lot of our, you know, best guests over the course of this, uh, calendar year and the stories that they tell. So we've chopped those up and that's going to come out tomorrow. So please check that out. To steal a line from Chris Berman, let me be among the first to wish you a happy new year. Again, tune in tomorrow for the year-end show. Follow along at Authentic on Twitter. Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Until next time, I'll see you at the window.